morning, everyone. Hopefully you can see me behind this podium. It's not always the case when I stand behind a podium. Um, but I'm very excited to read uh, for you Acts 8, 26 through 40. And if you want to follow along with me, it is on page 1669. It's one of those verses, as you read it more, uh, the better it gets. Um, I'll be reading out of the New English Standard Version. Um, so there are some variances. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go towards the south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And he got up and went and behold, there was a man, an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was over all her treasury, who had come to worship in Jerusalem and was returning and sitting in his chariot and reading aloud the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, approach and join this chariot. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading aloud Isaiah the prophet and said, so then do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how could I, unless someone will guide me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading aloud was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken from him. Who can describe his descendants? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch answered and said to Philip, I ask you, about whom does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? So Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, proclaimed the good news to him about Jesus. And as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into, into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch did not see him any longer for he went on uh, his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus and as he passed uh, through, he proclaimed the good news to all of the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thank you. Thanks, Sinach. How y'all doing? Okay. Good. I've been thinking about the Acts series. We're on sermon like 19. <clears throat> and sermon is a, our sermon. Acts is a very kind of 10,000 feet book. It's, it's a lot of gospel, Jesus. This is what God is doing in history. This is the big sweep of the story that we're all taken up into. This is, it's very big picture. And, um, I think I was kind of feeling as we were moving through some of these sermons that I wonder how people are feeling personally about like, does this feel practical? You know what I mean? Like, this is great theology, but like, I walk out and is this going to help me be a dad or a mom? Is this going to help me live with my idiotic roommates? Is this going to help me not want to crash my car into the woman that I just like barely veered into her lane and now she's screaming the F word at me on a public, you know, thoroughfare. And, um, and, and my answer is, <clears throat> yes, but I'm concerned it doesn't feel that way. And so <clears throat> what it reminds me of is a seventh grade art class or 
ninth grade, I can't remember now. <clears throat> but I remember being in art class and I remember wanting to draw because I had a couple friends that could draw really well and girls really seemed to like them. And so I thought this would be good to learn. So I was, I'm in class and the teacher is teaching us how to draw in perspective so that the thing that you draw doesn't look like it was made by being put in a jello mold that somebody stepped on, right? And because most kids, they just draw something and it looks a little bit like this, right? And you're kind of like, there's something not right about that because there is something not right about that. And in order to draw in perspective, what you have to do is you start with a horizon line, which is the eye line of whatever perspective you're looking at. And then everything in your picture tracks back to a dot on that horizon line. And you can draw in single perspective, everything tracks to a single dot, double perspective, multiple perspective, but everything tracks to a horizon line. And if you do that, everything looks like it should look. Everything looks real. It's not distorted, okay? The problem is, is that most seventh or ninth graders do not like having to draw with a ruler, right? Which is an interesting pun because most of us, when we are drawing out our little lives, don't want a ruler that is tracking, telling us to track our, our momentary drawing, what we're doing right now, to a horizon line of what he has said is true, right, good, and beautiful so that our life doesn't fall into that distortion. And the problem is, is that a lot of times I think we don't get a lot of training in what is between the horizon dot and the shelf. That li- you see that line? Because when you get done with a drawing, you erase all those. They're all gone. Or you never draw them. You go just so far and then you just stop the line. And so what happens for your average Christian is you come to church and the pastor gets up and talks about the horizon line. And the pastor is thinking, let's preach this from 10,000 feet because you can see so much from 10,000 feet. And people say, yeah, we're at 10,000 feet, but I can't see the flowers in my garden. Right? You can see the house, but you can't see the flowers. And so it doesn't feel practical. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to go through some of the things in this passage, and I want to focus on this issue, and I want to take it from 10,000 feet to 5,000 feet to flower level. Okay? So 10,000 feet should be really clear, and that is this. God is redeeming the world through the crucified and risen Jesus through these people who've come to believe in him, who have become his witnesses, the people who are telling other people about the redemptive message, and he's sending them out into the world, and they are leading people back to God's redemption and forgiveness, and he has chosen witnesses, and he will have witnesses, and the gospel will go out, and it is an enormously glorious thing, and it is the cosmic plan of divine redemption for everything. And that is just happening here. Right? And although we want to get it down into the nitty-gritty and make it super practical, if you actually read the Bible, God spends an enormous percentage of his self-revelation on the 10,000 feet stuff. And then some on the this stuff so that we can figure out how it goes together, which means 
that if you're gonna really love to follow Jesus the way he's created you to, you are gonna have to give yourself to understanding that, understanding how the drawing works so that you can draw in the present and it looks beautiful rather than, that's not a real word. What that means is you and I are gonna have to let our feelings of devotion whatever they are, drive us to something more substantive, a more deeper understanding of the gospel and knowledge of the Bible. It just has to to lead to that. Um, What you and I, what what we all need is a deeper understanding of the gospel and a deeper knowledge of the Bible. So let's, let's start with what I mean by that, right? So you get into Acts 8, and what is Acts 8 about, right? It's kind of like, a, it, for a lot of people, it feels kind of like a throwaway between the work of Peter and the work of Paul. In chapter 9, Paul's going to get converted. He's going to go on multiple missionary journeys. He's going to lead three continents to Jesus. Before that, the first seven chapters or so are pretty dominated by Peter's leadership. And then you get this one kind of in the middle, and here's this guy, Philip, and he kind of gets a chapter, and that's pretty much it, and what is going on, Right? And like Bob said yesterday, what's going on is Jesus made a promise. He made a promise at the end of Luke's gospel and at the beginning of the book of Acts, and he said, you, he said, he said, you are going to be the witnesses or the sharers of the message of God's salvation to everybody. It's going to start in the city of Jerusalem, and then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria, and then it's going to go to the very ends of the earth. That's what's going to happen. And you're going to do this. I'm going to empower you, and you're going to do it. Right? And then he ascends and proves that he's not going to do it. You're going to do it, right? We're going to do it. <clears throat> and then he sends his Holy Spirit so we know that he's, he's going to do it through us, right? <clears throat> now, in this passage, people get a little confused because at the beginning half of chapter 8, it explicitly says that when the persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, Philip goes into—it says that all the apostles are able to stay in Jerusalem, but lots of other people get kicked out, and they talk about the gospel everywhere they go, and the person that emerges as the new main character is Philip. Now think about this. If the apostles stay in Jerusalem, who are the next main characters? Well, they're the deacons, right, from six. And the first deacon, and the most impressive one, was Stephen. And what happened to him? He got killed, right? So who's next on that list? The lep. Boom, right? So here emerges Philip. So Philip goes into Samaria because he has to. And he starts preaching about Jesus, and God does miracles through him, and people turn to Jesus. And it doesn't even mention any particular town. It's just, it says that Samaria accepted the gospel. And so John and Peter go up there, and all that happens last week, right? And then this passage, it says, he goes to the south, and he runs into an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, how does that fit in to the big picture, right? I mean, Jesus didn't say, like, all, you know, all authority in heaven and earth is, you know, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and with Ethiopian eunuchs. Like, that's not really what he said, right? And part of the reason for that is, is that we haven't really learned, usually, how to read the Bible devotionally. Because when we read the Bible devotionally, the mistake that we make is we read it devotionally, Okay? Here's what I mean by that. What does it mean to read the Bible devotionally, right? It means to read it in such a way as to have the intent that it would increase our devotion, right? But you don't go after that directly. One of the things you have to do is read the Bible and find out what it says. And when you find out what it says, 
then you'll learn something about God and what he's done and how he acts towards you and all that. And then that will be amazing and that will increase your devotion. So we, we ha- I had this professor in, in seminary called, named Don Carson, but he was also called the dragon. And it was because he would give these really hard quizzes, especially on the book of Acts. And it was always like the most remote word. The, it was like, you know, what tribe and what town is Barnabas from? And you're like, look, I remembered there's a Barnabas. Okay, give me a break, right? And then he'd be like, yeah, and you misspelled it, right? <clears throat> and so the, the, so the question he would ask in this passage is, when Philip left the Ethiopian eunuch, where did he go? Now, I've been easy on you, and I put the answer on the board, right? But when he so like teleports, and this is the only like straight up teleporting in the New Testament, right? Which is pretty awesome, right? He like teleports, he goes to this place that is not mentioned like anywhere else in the Bible called Azotus, right? And we just read over that. Oh, he went to Azotus. I hope he had a good latte. And we just turn the page, right? But the reason this is important is because people do not refer to states when they're in them. So, for example, let's say we started, like, some company in Madison. We're like, we're going to—we say our thesis statement is, we're going to spread this company all over Wisconsin, right? And then we get to the first, like, shareholder meeting. We're like, we were in Madison, and then we got to Milwaukee, and then we had a thing in Sheboygan, and then we went to blah, 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 and people are like, yeah, we're, we're spreading throughout Wisconsin, right? And they don't have to say Wisconsin. But if you did that in, like— you know, Memphis, you'd be like, we were in Madison, and we moved to Milwaukee, and then we went to Sheboygan, and they'd be like, you named what? What? That is a name? And they would not take from that, we're moving all over Wisconsin, especially if you start going, we went to Rhinelander, and then we went to Evansville, and people would be like, right? We would know if we had decent Wisconsin geography, that means we're moving around Wisconsin. Nobody else would. See, the problem is we don't live in Judea, especially not in the first century. And so when somebody was like, he went to Azotus, we go, why does he just throw overhand? <laughs> but Azotus is the coastal town at the far south border of Judea. That's where it is. So Philip goes down out of Samaria. He heads towards the Gaza Road, which is the entrance to Egypt, all the way at the bottom, right? It does literally say in the translation that Sienna tried, go to the south, right? And then he gets teleported, and you're like, how far did he teleport? Yeah, like 10 miles. That's it, right? Would have been awesome if he, like, teleported to Beijing, right? Be like, and then he was in Beijing, and he led a bunch of people to Jesus, and then he went to Moscow. But there wasn't a Moscow, right? So he, you know, so he goes to Azotus. Why? Because he's just popping over to the coastal plain and he's going to preach his way up the coastal plain until he gets to Caesarea, which is referred to by historians as Caesarea Maritima, that is the maritime Caesarea, because it's right on the Mediterranean and it is in Samaria, just over the border from Judea, which means he preached his way from Azotus to Caesarea. Get it? He preached the gospel all the way through Judea. Hence, chapter 8 is the fulfillment of Judea and Samaria right? Except God is already expanding it because this one big story they tell is the guy who's going all the way to stinking Nubia, right? Like central Sudan. Like that's the story. Why? Why does he tell that story? Well, it shows that the gospel is already going to the ends of the earth. 
that even while God is preaching the gospel in Judea and Samaria and Judea, he's already sending it to the ends of the earth, much further than that. He also demonstrates the cross-racial nature again, and he demonstrates God's providence in getting the gospel into places of influence so that it can spread. It also demonstrates that already God has broken the gates around the law in the Old Testament and is inviting in people that would have been on the outside, which we'll get to in a little bit. But that's the big picture. That's 10,000 feet. Why does that matter? Right, where's that going to take us? Well, if, if you will pay attention to that, what we'll see in this passage is that the thing that makes this passage great is that there was a person in this passage that wanted to understand the gospel and wanted to know the Bible. And there's a person in this passage that did understand the gospel and did know the Bible. And those two came together because of God's work. Understanding the gospel and knowing the Bible is what you need. Even if you have a bad attitude about it, it's still what you need. And so I say that partly because I want to connect this to like our ministry model here at High Point Church. Like the middle circle is literally that. Understand the gospel and know the Bible. That is so big. It's why so many things we do here are designed to just help you know the gospel, understand the gospel, know the Bible better. It's because it is an enormous need for us and it's what creates the lines between the horizon points and the drawing. And so it orients it and clarifies it. So let me give you two applications of this in this passage. The first thing is, you and I can be informed by this passage that we need to seek more than just superficiality in our devotion. Right? Our devotion should move us towards deeper things. I became a Christian before I went to college, and I somehow got the idea that when God told me to do stuff, I was supposed to do it. Very strange notion. So when I met my wife, and I, I really liked her, one of the things Jesus told me to do was not to sleep with her until I married her. And so, to quote um, Bat Chandler, intimacy in dating is called talking. And so because I was really interested in her, there was a devotion welling up in me, what it drove me to was to learn her. And we would talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And I did not talk with just anybody for hours and hours and hours. I talked with her because I had a growing devotion to her. And, the, and, and see, this is very, there's a very strong misunderstanding in our present culture because what do people do with the first inkling of devotion now? They just run off with it. They don't let it produce what it's supposed to produce. There's supposed to be this beautiful dance between devotion and knowing that God has built into the drives of our sexuality and our personal relationships, where devotion is supposed to build knowing until you marry, and then there's this dance between them that grows a marriage and produces a family and makes all kinds of beautiful things in human relationship. That's what devotion is meant to drive us deeper into something, into knowing somebody, what they're really like, right? And so when you look at the Ethiopian eunuch, you see somebody who is experiencing what a lot of us experience when we just try to read the Bible devotionally. And we just read it and we go, oh, I like that. Do you, have, you know what I'm talking about? People that open their Bible and they're reading along and then they read a verse that they kind of like. It just kind of strikes you. You just kind of go, huh, I like that. Right? And then what happens? 
That's a tidbit for the day, right? Oh, that's good. Close their Bible, have a little prayer time. They've had their quiet time, right? Here's the problem. It's a misuse of devotion. That little verse that kind of caught your attention and you went, oh, oh. Here's what you did. You took that emotional energy that comes from that, right? This little pop of devotion, right? So you take that and you put it in your week bottle. This is going to get me through my week, right? Or my day, right? And you put it in, the, in your little day gas tank, right? You, you turn on your little day gas and you drive in your little day car, right? And you get through about a third of your day and it's right? And you're like, well, I didn't get very many. I need a, I need a more efficient engine, right? I mean, like, it's, you're kind of like, why did that run out? And here's why it ran out. Because that's not what it's for. It wasn't what that pop of devotion was for, that little intrigue. That was meant to bring you deeper. The reason the girl looked at you like that wasn't so you could walk away and be like, hey, girl, check me out. She wanted you to actually ask her out. It was meant to bring you further in. It, that was the whole point, right? And like when you read a little verse and you kind of like that, you're not getting to know Jesus. The Bible's just flirting with you. Okay, that's what's happening. And I don't, it just came to me. I don't know if that's okay to say. But like, the, the point is, is that, that like, it's, it's meant to draw you into the Bible. It's not meant to like be like, oh, I feel good. I can go through. No, because that, that is not sufficient to get you through the week or the, or the day or whatever. It's not what it's for. It's meant to drive you and say, wait a second, what's really going on there? It's meant to make you figure out what's really there. When I started to like Alexi, that devotion drove me to figure out what's really there. And so I had to find out, and that took some work, and I'm pretty glad now, most days, that that happened. <laughs> Here's one of the things that we miss, because you're like, Nick, how does that have anything to do with this passage, right? Because, because here's how this passage is usually preached, right? So God sends Philip to, towards Gaza, and the Ethiopian eunuch is going there. He's already worshipped in Jerusalem. He bought himself an Isaiah scroll. He's reading it on his way down out loud, which is a trick for getting more out of the Bible when you read it. Read it out loud, and you will hear more, you'll think more, you'll get more, you'll remember more. It's, it's, it seems, and, and it, you'll feel foolish. But it actually produces some really cool things. You know this if you've ever listened to it like in your car. You're driving around and you hear something read, read out loud that you've read. And you're like, I never, what? I never thought of it like that. It's because you're hearing it. And the Bible is written for auditory. It's, it's, it wasn't written for a culture that had books. It was written for people who hear. So it was, right? Anyway. So he's going down there. And so God has him reading the most obvious passage in the whole Old Testament about Jesus, right? And so he's reading the, the one passage in the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah who is crucified, who substitutes and atones for our sins and rises from the dead. is all in that passage. And so the way we normally talk about this is God brings in Philip— and then he throws this like softball pitch, like the easiest possible passage in the whole Bible. And then Philip is like, oh, I got this now. And boom, man, he hits that thing like he is at the Red Mouse ballpark where that, that fence is like 30 feet from the home plate and it is just sailing into the corn, okay? And that is, and that is kind of true and also kind of not true because the Ethiopian eunuch has zeroed in on this verse. Why? Is it just God's providence? Or is God's providence using something in order to zero him in? Think about this. 
He's a eunuch. What's the verse he focuses on? He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer, the shearer, as a lamb before the shearer, is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, gentlemen, just think, what would be the most humiliating things? Okay. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Think about this. He's a eunuch. He's been forcibly castrated as a slave. He's reading this book. He comes across a character of which God says that he was shorn, humiliated, deprived of justice, and has no children. And no one can speak of his descendants. And it is one of the most terrible injustices. And yet, God sees it. God sees its injustice, and God ultimately vindicates this person, this character, because he cares about justice, and he sees injustice, and he sees somebody who is enslaved and receives injustice and is personally shorn and has no descendants. And this guy says, I can identify with this character, right? I like this character. This character speaks to me. And he gets a devotional point out of it. The devotional point is, God sees me. And is he right? Absolutely he's right. Absolutely he's right. But is that the real gift of the 10,000-foot gospel that this passage has to give this man? It's not. But the question he has is when he turns to Philip and Philip says, can you understand? He says, no. He says, who is this? Is this Isaiah? Is it Isaiah I'm going to identify? Is it somebody else? Who is it? Right? And it says that Philip took that passage and from that passage explained the gospel and the eunuch believed it. And now think about this for a second. I don't, I'm not positive how Philip did this. What I do know is that the risen Jesus had taught him how to read his, new, his Old Testament. And if you want to hear this in full sermon length, I did a series on this last year when I was in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, a man who is shorn with no descendants, who suffers injustice, atones for all people, and it literally says he will see his offspring. Only place in the Bible where a person with no descendants will see their offspring. That's a little puzzling. How does that work? You turn the page to Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O infertile barren woman. Because the day is coming where you will need longer ropes for your tent and deeper stakes because I'm widening my tent and more will be the children of the infertile or barren woman than of she who has a husband. That is, God is going to create a people for himself that is not created biologically and is therefore not racially constrained either. Well, how? Turn the page to 55. 55, verse 1. Come all you who are thirsty. All who are hungry, come and eat. Drink wine without, and bread without cost. I will give you the richest foods. Just come. And then it says, well, who's this for? It says, let the wicked man forsake his way. Let, it, let, let him let his wickedness go and let him turn to the Lord. Why? Because the unthinkable will happen. The Lord will pardon. He'll forgive. And then it says this, and it's what many of us Christians put on a mirror because we want to we wanna like, and it's not about what we think it's about. And then it says, for my ways are not your ways, says the Lord, 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my, your, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Meaning, you would never do this. You and I are not nearly generous enough. We would never think this up. We would never think up a dead, shorn, broken Savior who dies an atoning death, rises from the dead, sees his descendants that he brings in through infertility because he just takes all people who would come to him through sheer grace where he calls the worst back, fully forgives them, and then says, my ways are higher than your ways. Listen, complain all you want. And then he says in the next verse, just as the snow and the rain come down from heaven and they water it and things grow and it is inexplicable, so my word. He says, when I speak, it will produce that and it will create a flourishing life of redemption. And then you turn the page, but for who? Is it really for everybody? Who is the greatest outcast in all of that supposed promise? Two people. In Isaiah 56, the foreigner and the eunuch. And what is this guy? An Ethiopian eunuch. And it says this. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any you to complain, I'm only a dry tree. Nothing's going to come from me. There's no fruit. It's going to come from my life. For this is what the Lord says. The Lord who said, what about his word? two pages earlier. It always produces what I say it's going to. He says, this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give them within my temple. Now remember, in the Torah it says, anybody with damaged genitals cannot come into the temple. That's kind of a weird law, right? It's a little bit of a weird law. Really, you're going to sing loud. You're going to write that one in there, right? Apparently there's a plan for it about how redemption works. There is going to be a day, he says, where that person, right, he says, I will give within my temple and its walls, meaning there's no question about where, it's like, well, maybe it's the outer courts, maybe it's a little banner outside. No, inside the holy place, on the wall, is his name. A memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be, pun intended, cut off. You see, Philip's like, you need to roll the scroll a little farther. Do you see that? Now, can you imagine if you're that guy and you started with a perfectly true devotional feeling that there's something about this character in chapter 53 that is like me and God sees him and God promises to vindicate him and somehow God, maybe God will see me and maybe God will do something in my life and wouldn't that be awesome? And do you see what happens? He keeps reading and Philip explains it to him and all of a sudden he realizes that he he didn't even see the elephant's toe of the glory of God for his redemption. I mean, just so nothing. And all of a sudden he can see that 10,000 feet and they get to water. What, what does he say? This, that verse is not in the Bible for Baptists. Now, that proves a convenient point for us. But that's not what the verse is about. Think about what he says. What does he say? He says, there's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Right? There's actually no reason I can't be in. 
There's no exclusion to me. I was just at the temple, and they wouldn't even let me go in because I was a foreigner and a eunuch. I was twice excluded. I bought this scroll. I'm on my way home to the middle of nowhere, and what you're telling me is that we're going to go down in the water, and you are going to put me down and bring me out, and I will die and raise to the glory of Christ. I will belong to him forever, and I am as in as anybody because the tent has opened And the children of the barren woman have come in from every race, every culture, every tongue, such that, what does it say at the end there? Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. That is, not only will they have a name, they will be in the temple. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Does that sound familiar? If you don't know much about the Bible, that is the exact line Jesus quoted when he entered in the temple where stuff was being sold and that these people were being kept out of that outer court as close as they were allowed to get. And he starts flipping over tables and whipping people. He says, because in in his justification is that verse, my father's house was to be called a house of prayer for all nations. How dare you keep them out of the court they're allowed into until final redemption comes. But here's here's what I want you to see from that. What I want you to see from that is this. Your little bits of devotion that come across, you're like, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. I don't really, I don't really do what he says. And the less I know about what he says, kind of the better. Like, whatever, whatever amount of devotion that there is in you for to know God, to follow Jesus, to even investigate that Jesus even exists, it's not meant to be an end in itself. There is an infinite glory a, a, a lit, it is the only literal infinite glory. But there is a literal infinite glory of the beauty, of the wisdom, of the perfections of God for us to, to drink from that God has poured out in his self-revelation in Jesus and in the scriptures. And he has given it, not in its entirety, but plenty to astound you for whatever life full of years you might live. And it is in each step of devotion is meant to drive you to a deeper and greater one. So that when you get ready to go out for your week, you are not dumping a small vial of poultry fuel into what's supposed to carry you through your week. But, you, but you're going to drive a Humvee with a nuclear reactor through your week. And I know that there's probably some of you that feel like you come here and I'm a little hard on you. And I realize that, and sometimes I, I sh- I'm being hard on you, illegitimately. That's totally true. But what I want you to see is you don't have to flop through on the paltry, little, undisciplined amount of motivation that you suck out of some little thing, but that if you will follow that where it's supposed to lead— into the gospel and into what God has self-revealed, it will produce a fountain of motivation so that you won't make it through your week. You will blow your week apart because you become a totally different kind of person. Let's go to the next one. The second is, is that substance, getting away from superficiality and getting into substance will make you for all seasons and all moments. Now, the reason, okay, so how does that relate to this passage? If you look at Philip about like what we've mentioned so far, it seems like Philip is a pretty awesome guy, 
right? In chapter 6, they look for people who can take care of problems, who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. So like the spiritually awesomest people, right? I mean, that's like, you're like, well, there's all this list for elders, but just write spiritual awesomeness. Seek, right? And they go, Stephen and then Philip, right? He's number two, second round draft pick. We needed a receiver, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. And so he's, he's awesome, right? And then he's also this miracle worker, like twice in chapter eight, it refers to him doing many miracles. That's, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. And then in chapter 21, he's referred to as Philip the evangelist, which on one level denotes that he's an evangelist. Another funny thing though is he's the only person in the whole Bible called the evangelist. So I kind of wonder if he's like the evangelist. You know what I mean? Which is not true, but it's funny to think about. But the point is, is you've got this guy who is this killer evangelist, who's evangelized basically all of modern-day Israel, who is a full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, who does miracles. And you're kind of like, okay, so here's the moral of the story. Philip is basically a spiritual rock star that because he is awesome— the church spread out from Jerusalem so that we could become Christians today, and he is so much better than you, right? But on another level, that happens when we kind of read, and we don't think about what this is really, what's really happened. So yeah, was Philip a deacon? Absolutely. And was he a deacon because he was full of wisdom of the Holy Spirit? Yes. But what did he actually do? The Bible explicitly says he got the job because some widows were being neglected over others and somebody had to do that right. So basically what Philip did was he would sit down with old women and he would give them bread and soup and water and he would, he would listen to them tell him for the 14th time about their husband. A story that he'd already heard four times and he would listen to it, looking them in the eye lovingly and when she finally finished, he'd say, he sounds like he was a wonderful man. And he'd hug her, and he'd say, I'll see you tomorrow. And he'd go on, and he'd do that again and again. That's what he did. It's really ordinary, right? He was evangelist. It was totally, he was an evangelist. And in some places, he did really cool miracles, like teleporting, apparently, right? And yet, right? And yet, what does that really mean? Because we only got a couple of episodes. But what happened most of the time? Most of the time, he woke up tired. He found something to eat. He washed up a little, you know, put on his whatever clothes he was wearing. He went out and found some place where there was people. He tried to tell them about Jesus. A couple people believed. Most people said he was a something idiot. And that was what he did. That's what it means to be an evangelist. And then he was a pastor guy. Because it says that when he left Azadus, he preached all the way up to Caesarea. But then when we meet up with him again in chapter 21, where is he? He's in Caesarea still. That's where he made his home. Caesarea, which was the pagan Roman city. The reason Caesarea was a great city is because Herod wanted a place with a breeze and didn't want to be in stuffy Jerusalem. And the Romans wanted a place they could defend on the water. So when the crazy Jewish people rose up to kill them, they would have a place where they could bring in soldiers by sea and strike out in strength. Because guess how much wall there is in Jerusalem? Like nine and a half miles. How many soldiers do you need to keep that thing defended? Sort of a lot, right? But you, could, you can keep Caesarea Maritima held down with about 200. It's a very small wall. And then if the Jews rise up, you just send some word off to Rome. You get about a legion to come in. You open the doors, you go out, and you kill everybody. It's very simple. And there's a 
swimming pool cut into the rock, and there's a hippodrome and a theater. It's very cosmopolitan. But it's also the most pagan city in his country. And you can just imagine that he's not part of the Jewish trade unions, and he's not part of the Roman political elite. He's this third thing, a Christian, and you can just imagine how he was treated. And yet he pastored there for apparently 20 or 30 years, such that when Paul came into Caesarea, he stayed at his house. And it says in that verse in chapter 21 that Philip had four grown daughters that prophesied, and it doesn't mention his wife, which may just be Luke doesn't mention his wife. But it could also mean that he not only was dad and raised four daughters, but he might have done it for a certain amount of time by himself. I, I went through a lot of family records in the 1800s, and I'll just tell you the average woman survived about three children. So it's very possible that daughter four killed mom and He's pastoring, and he's got one preteen daughter that's being like, Daddy, why won't you let me? And he's still changing diapers on another one, and he's doing it by himself, and he's in a city that hates him, and he's, and he's doing it day in and day out and day in and day out. And he probably didn't get a salary for it. He probably had a job where at the end of the day his back hurt. And that's Philip's life. And because he was a man that understood the gospel and knew the Bible, it meant that when it was time for him to knock the ball out of the park with the Ethiopian eunuch, he was ready. He was ready for greatness. When that moment came that was super sexy, he nailed it. Oh, sorry about that. When that moment came that where he really had a huge opportunity, he was ready for that opportunity. And when it was time for him to, to just crank out life day in and day out, just making it through basic things every time. He just did. He just had substance. He had character. It didn't matter what life threw at him. He made it through such that he was Philip the evangelist. And he was the pastor of Caesarea Maritima. And people talked about the old days when he was teleporting around Gaza. I, mean, I think that would be a really cool saying at High Point. We already say stuff people don't understand. So like when people say that their life is going really good or really bad, we just go, hey, it ain't all teleporting to Azotus. <laughs> right? It's pretty good, right? Anyhow, the, the point is he, was a, he had become a man of substance. He got the horizon straight. He knew he had to draw the life. He laid down the ruler of the gospel and he made the lines work. He, he drew it right. He knew how to make calls. He knew how to make decisions. He made the gut checks. And when it was time to be cool, he was awesome. When it was time to be dad, he was dad. He did it all out of, out of that same place. And if you will let, if we will all let our devotion drive us away from superficiality and into the deepening glories of God. And if we will do it day in and day out, and if we will invite people to teach us and mentor us and listen attentively to teaching and read our Bibles and do those things, we will see that glory and it will build into us a character and it will straighten out the edges and it will produce something of incredible substance that will have enormous power in our lives, and it will produce what it said it produced in the Ethiopian eunuch. What did he go off doing, it said? It said he went off rejoicing. So let me bring it down to like five feet. So yesterday, I had to make two decisions. 
One is so beyond terrible that I can't even talk about it, okay? So I'm going to tell you about the second hardest decision I had to make yesterday. So one of our kids um, made a cut to get into a, a child opportunity kind of thing. You know, there's so many of them, right? And uh, Lexi and I had to make the decision of do we put this child into that thing, right? It's very middle class, suburban kind of thing, right? And you know what the culture is here, right? If there's something that can nurture your kid, and especially if they make a cut to get in it, if you don't put them in it, you're a horrible person, okay? Anything your kid can get into, especially if they beat some other kid to get into it, you had better put them into it or you are going to whatever hell secular people believe in, okay? And on top of that, we want our kids to like us and we want our kids to be happy. Not just long-term, like, happy when they're grown up. We want to be happy right now. I like giving my kids chocolate because it ma- they like it, right? And so this is something that our kid likes, wants to be in, enjoys, right? But, but the reality is, is that in our income bracket, it's either we help her in college in 10 years or she does this now, Right? And we have four children. We just flat can't afford to do that for all four of our children. We just—we chose to have more children. And so that's—that lines up certain realities for you, and I don't regret them, and this is one of them. And frankly, if she was the most successful possible she could be at this, she would get a scholarship to college— she would do nothing fun in college except do this in her classwork, and she'd get to get at least one knee replacement, maybe hip replacement when she's a 35-year-old mom. I don't find that attractive. And I just don't see how to raise her to love a family when I spend my money sending her away from it every day possible. And so, listen, I know how other parents are going to look at us. I think we're probably, we may be the only parents that are not accepting the offer. And listen, whatever, there's a lot of people that disapprove of me. And there's a lot of people that are going to disapprove of you. Because the minute you get those horizon points straight, and you start drawing on the base of them, and you lay that ruler down, and you start making it work, people are going to push in on those lines and pull out on those lines, and they're going to say, don't you love your kids, and don't you believe in, don't you want to have a future, and you can't suffer through that, and nothing's ever going to change, and don't you want to, and listen, I don't care. On some level, I, and so not only did Lexi and I make this decision, we sat down with our kid who is not 13, one of the ones younger than that, which is all four of my kids, and we, we did this for her. We drew the horizon line, and we put the dots on it, and we drew what her life was going to look like, and we started drawing out the lines, and we started to show her what we were deciding. And we actually said to her, we said, listen, if you want to try it, Maybe we could, maybe we could, but this is what we're looking at. And sweetie, you need to realize that your life is going to be defined by, in some ways, more by what you let go of than by what you cling to. 
And so she really wanted to do it, and she cried. But it wasn't an angry cry. It was a letting something going, watching it burn to death in front of her cry. And then we hugged her for like five minutes, and then we prayed. And then we watched her cry and laugh, and then we talked about the other things that God was going to open up for her. And, and there is no freaking way we could have done that if our family didn't have very clear horizon lines. And if Alexi and I didn't have very clear horizon lines, and if we together had not talked endlessly about where those lines were and what our horizon was and who was in charge and what family means, and if we hadn't been spending years drawing those lines and erasing them when they looked terrible and redrawing them so that maybe at some point we get something right, maybe. And that was my super easy decision yesterday, comparatively. And what I'm telling you is, I just about broke down and started crying yesterday. I, got, I wasn't going to turn on Jesus, but I was just about the end of what I had to go on. Um, because I need a deeper, stronger character, because deep down I'm a coward. That's what that means, okay? And, and I'm okay with that, because Jesus doesn't let his sheep go, Right? But, but the only way I made on those two decisions and had enough to make those calls and, to, and for Alexi and I to be able to talk and not hate each other. I mean, how, I, we've had a lot of conversations like this where we ended up fighting because we didn't have it clear. And friends, you and I have to drive deeper into deeper substance. We have to be clear. We have to draw the lines. We have to listen to the gospel. We have to see the divine ruler. We have to learn more about the glories of God. We have to apply and see how they work in real life. And then we have to draw on the basis of them. And we have to embrace the strength and the clarity and the motivation that they give us. Christian courage and power in life does not come from sheer momentary inspiration. One of the things that I think is a just flat-out deception that a lot of us fall into is something that's very kind of unclear. And that is this. We pretend that we're practical people when really we're not. We're pragmatic people. And those are very different things. The question a truly practical person asks is this. And listen, I am intentionally coming after you right now. Okay. And I'm going to come out. I already came after myself on this. I'm going to do it again later. But listen, I want you to listen to this. A truly practical person asks the question, how will I practice this? Not whether, how. Right? That's... How is it practiced? That's the question a honestly practical person asks. But that's not what most of us are. Because once you know what you have to do, the how is this practice question actually really isn't that hard usually. It's just hard to do. The pragmatic person says, will this get me my outcome that I want? That's what the pragmatic person asks. If I accept that truth and I ask how that is put into practice and I look at the possibility and, 
and probability of that outcome. Am I going to get what I want? Am I going to be happy? Are good things going to happen to me? Am I going to have the freedoms and choices and things that I want? And the answer that they will see is no. And so what they say is, forget that truth and forget that practice. I'm going to put a new truth in place that is going to get me a practice that I want, that is going to get me the end that I want because I'm a practical person. No, you aren't. No, you aren't. You're a pragmatist. You're an atheist. In Christian terms, you're an idolater. And part of the reason why that's so drawing to us is because we haven't seen the glories of the depths that we will see if we let our devotion carry, carry us into the greatness and the beauty and the depths and the purposes and the wisdom of God. This much Christian devotion is not going to help you destroy an idol that big. You pick the idol every time. But if this much devotion drives you to this much, which drives you deeper to where you find something even more beautiful that produces this much, to that much, to this much, it will drive you deeper and deeper and deeper into an infinite store of courage and strength. And you will beat the idol to death and you will drive a nuclear-powered Humvee through your life. It won't happen to you. You will happen to it. And only then will we be people who can really help each other and others because there'll be so much left over that we can carry other people's burdens. So many of us are like, I can't, I can't do my life. Well, okay, fine. Here's the thing. Jesus is going to get us to not only where you can do your life, but you can do somebody else's too until they can. And that is the real change that happens when you take the 10,000 horizon and you draw it down to the momentary drawing of the choices of your life. And those two are truly connected all the way down. That is that you understand the gospel and you know the Bible and it gets into everything and it changes and clarifies everything and it motivates everything. And it will produce the courage and joy that you're trying to get another way or that you haven't found in Christian faith and so you think Christian faith doesn't work. When in reality, we've just been confused and we didn't know how to work it. And so we've hidden in pragmatism and we're not practical people at all. And the only man who ever lived that was perfectly practical was Jesus. And so the first step is to really turn to him. And let these things come as they may and as they will. Let's pray. Father, we... Um, we want so much to have our devotion drive us to the right places and to deepen things and to, we want the courage and the, and the joy and the happiness and all the things that, that come from these things, but it's just, we just don't really believe in them. And we pray that you would take us like the Ethiopian eunuch and you would take us from just something we kind of connect with 
and then you would bring somebody into our life and that you would come into our life and that you would show us how to read the Bible and you would show us how to understand the gospel in such a way that whatever that little thing we connected with would open up into this much bigger thing and that it would take away our superficiality and build into us a substance that is incredible and so that we could be like Philip, that we could have this kind of daily and momentary power and disciplined, character-filled greatness. So not only can we love you and can we live out our lives, but we can draw other people into your redemption. Like Philip did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.